All right, welcome to St. Charles History Chronicles. I'm Steve Gibson. I'm your host. I'm board president here and currently acting executive director. Uh, joining me today as co-host is uh, Eric Krupa. Um, say hi, Eric. Hey, hello. My name is Eric. I'm the collections and exhibitions manager here at the St. Charles Public, oh, well, St. Charles History Museum. Yeah. Getting them confused. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to do. Um, we're we're going to take some time today. This is our first podcast, so if I stammer and stutter and stuff, um, it's just because we're kind of improvising this. Um, we're hoping to make this a regular feature for the museum and another way to bring information to you out there in the public. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, today we're going to learn a lot about Eric, I hope, and um, and take some time maybe to learn a little bit more about the museum. Um, first of all, I kind of want to let everybody know that uh, we're currently in our 90th year as a, muse- as a historical society. Um, I think it's not quite that early for the museum. I think when we look back at it, Eric, it's kind of, what, 1940s is when the Municipal Center had a museum. Before that, it was more of a... Catch. More of a club, I would say. More of a club dedicated to putting on exhibitions and stuff around the area. Yeah. Uh, more like the Colson's building to celebrate the centennial. There was a large collection of pretty much the whole town's uh, collections that were put on display for the centennial. Yeah, and then and little by little, I think we kind of got ingrained into the community, and then you can see it when Baker put together the, the Municipal Center in the 1940s with the Norrises. That was something they put in the museum blueprint, actually, to, to create the museum there. Yep, we have some legal documentation dating back to 1941 for that uh, inclusion into the municipal building and as making kind of a permanent museum for the St. Charles area. Great. And, of course, everybody knows that today we're not no longer at the Municipal Center. Um, that's another story maybe for a, another podcast or a longer day. But um, it, essentially that's the legal creation for this and kind of the idea when we were going to actually have a museum space as opposed to, like you said, a club that got together to regularly talk about things in their history and things like that. Um, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, how long have you been with the museum? So I've been with the museum since October of 2020. Okay, so you came right in the middle of all that fun during the pandemic, and I, I mean fun with quotation marks oh, yes. around it. Yeah, capital F-U-N. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's your background? Uh, my background, I've got a history and political science uh, background, a BA in both of those from Winona State University, and then I got my master's in library and information science from University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in 2020. Oh, great. Okay. So you kept it all local. Yes, <laughs> relatively, yeah. <laughs> Midwest. Yeah. Um, so you've been here for a while. I I met you when I got back here, um, a couple of years ago and, um, um, you, you really enjoy the entire process of this kind of stuff. Um, I think a lot of people kind of nerd out on it, but it's nice to bring a a level of professionalism to it when you're doing it, not just making a big pile of maps and things to look through. Um, if you had like a a goal for what you're doing here, can, can you kind of sum it up? Well, the goal here is to collect, preserve, and present. How about that? Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, right there in the mission statement. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the main goal here is to organize, get stuff accessible to the community. We want people to be able to reach out and research different areas if they want to come in with questions. We do have research options here where you could do your own research. And then we also have a paid option where it'd be $25 per two hours. Um I would honestly say trying to reach out to the community, get our archives into a professional kind of, well, we're working on it. Everybody's been working on it for 20 years, yeah, and it's a process that pretty much will never end. But we are trying to get our archives and collections always to the pristine and the... Uh, what would the word accurate be? or easily accessible? Well, I should say to museum standards and go. up to professional 
uh, snuff there. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people might not even be aware of the fact that there is something called museum science or, oh, or yeah. those kinds of things. And I think that's one of the things that I had to kind of uh, learn when I came in. I mean, you think that um, there's a matter of uh, organization, but I mean, from the simple stuff like the type of cardboard you use to put something in or the type of plastic sheet or, or whatever the thing is you're doing, you have to have some kind of knowledge to work from that. Oh, gosh, yeah. And then, like like you said about the museum, there's so many different departments there. Like uh, in a bigger museum, let's say like a city, like Field Museum, you have a department for each kind of, of the natural history sciences. Then you have your museum educators. Then you have your archivists and librarians, which is kind of what I do there. I deal with all the old documents, all the old collections. And um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, it's also a, um, it's one of those things where I'm sure there's specialties within a specialty. Oh, gosh, it just gets more and more specific the further you go along there, yeah, yeah. for sure. And I think that's another thing that maybe is a, we could kind of thank modern science for is that you, you could have in, a, in the old days maybe a generalist museum person that would just be the, a great person to stuff you know, animals or something and, and be considered that because they have the biggest collection of, of squirrels in, in the neighborhood. Um, today, the skills that you have, you can take to any museum and, and probably any type of um, archive and, and apply those those skills to that. Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, on top of that comes all different theories and scientific kind of, well, scientific in quotations were probably one of the more less science-based, <laughs> let's be honest here. Yeah. Uh, we're more liberal arts but I would say uh, for that, oh, geez, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's also it's the technology. I mean, that's the other thing. That, yeah. You know, even museums are using technology. You know, you and I both deal a lot with um, online cloud-based stuff now. We're putting information in places that, you know, in the good old days, you would make a uh, black and white copy of an old document and you would call that your backup of the document. You know, today we're digitizing stuff at 600 PPI or something that, that's going to create something that a person could look at it with a magnifying glass and recover some information with it. Yep, digitization is right now every archivist, if it hasn't been done already, their top-notch, top priority there because we are now moving to the digital age. And another way of making it accessible to the public is bringing it all online. Yeah, accessible and, and kind of transparently accessible. You mm -hmm. don't have to edit anything to put something in, in a really high-quality thing online. Yeah, so. now, you know, any museum could actually, they have the technology, any size museum could get a nice scanner and make it accessible and make it very easy. Yeah, yeah. that's great. It just takes time. <laughs> that's Yeah, the, the one thing that none of us have enough of. Um, and then in terms of museums itself, um, St. Charles Museum kind of struck me when I first walked in. It's kind of one of these... Um, you come in the front door and you see one type of museum, but then as you get into the archives and you get into the background, and specifically when you get into the history, the, the captured history of, of St. Charles and, and everything else, we've got a pretty wide-ranging collection. I mean, I, I think the number we toss around is like 15,000 artifacts and 10,000 documents. Is that I better? would say probably around there. We have, If you include photographs and stuff, it really expands the collection a lot, mm -hmm. um, and we're always getting new stuff every day. We just pretty much accepted another 50 documents in the first two months here so yeah, yeah. 50 artifacts so okay and yeah. that and then that's, that brings up another question um while we might be saint charles's attic let's say where we're archiving things either accidentally or on purpose that could be important to someone in the future and and honestly we don't know that today right if you get yes. something in here today from last week there's no way to know whether that's important or not yep. 
except maybe based on experience. You know, you can look at certain things and say, well, that napkin's not going to be, you know, important, but maybe the menu will be from a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, When you look at something like that, for us at at the St. Charles History Museum, we've really got um, a way to kind of contextualize all that stuff. So we can talk about industry in St. Charles, and we've got some pretty good, you know, uh, pieces that we can show you what those industries were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then the same thing goes with, um, I think that probably the toughest thing for us to do is to create a one a one stop place for somebody to find everything there's no magic you know place here that you could say hey where can i find out everything about colson's okay you know that is a matter of research for somebody like you to do as opposed mm-hmm. to we don't have a book on the shelf that tells us the history of colson's per se exactly we got to find the primary sources go through the uh, you know whatever we have in our collection personally other research from newspapers and such like that secondary sources and we try and combine it make it a history <laughs> so the the um so the goal is to collect preserve and present so we're collecting it sometimes almost by accident i know that mm-hmm. myself from being here the people walk in the door and they've got a, a big pile of papers they found inside a wall inside their house when they're doing remodeling or someone found a, a framed photograph in a dumpster someplace or things like that um then we preserve it so when you when you get something in that's say 90 years old it's been sitting in somebody's attic for 90 years and we get in it at 90 years, and they've never archived they've never preserved it. What's the importance of doing it today? Well, the importance of doing it today is because it'll be lost if it isn't. Um, over here, we've got the conditions, we've got the proper tools, materials to keep these artifacts alive and kicking for the next, hopefully, 90 years and a lot longer than that down the line there. Great. And, and that actually is what really, where the museum adds value to like everything that comes in the door. However, when we're going through this accessioning process or the collecting process, we call it accessioning, um, you have to make some value judgments, too, because of the fact that we've got limited space. The fact that we've actually got um, so much area that we can put stuff. And I guess also, like uh, we've seen with newspapers, it may just come in in a shape that isn't usable any longer. We're, it's, it's gone past the, the usefulness. So when you're doing something like that, let me ask you one question about that. Is it important to have six copies of the same thing not necessarily no so typically we like to keep one copy of everything here sometimes we'll do duplicates if it's an important piece or if we find something that is a better uh condition we will probably deaccession the worst condition piece there okay so that's just one way to maximize space because if we take everything in it's uh, we're already low on space as most small museums are here so we're trying to make every square inch <laughs> yeah, count. work here. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth worth a lot of money to us. Um, so okay, you mentioned the word deaccession, which is you know sounds like a word that we made up just to be the opposite of accessioning, but that's literally what it's technically called. Yeah. So when we deaccession something, uh, basically we just like what throw it in the garbage. Is oh that yeah, absolutely. No, that is not <laughs> what we do. Um, so there's a specific process that we have to follow here. Um, a lot of rules and a lot of different. Uh, best practices that are set forth by places like the Society of American Archivists. Mostly what we do is we donate those uh, objects to other museums that might fit their scope of uh, collections better, since we like to focus just on St. Charles alone and just kind of the surrounding area. A lot of artifacts we get may be generic Chicago artifacts and stuff. So depending on that, we have the option to donate, we have the option to give to other people, we have the option to sell the artifact, but we could only use that money for getting new artifacts. 
Okay. And then sometimes if the condition is so poor, we do unfortunately have to throw some artifacts away. It just depends on, you know, basically the condition of the artifact, whether it's important to the mission and goal. But that's usually the last step that is absolutely, you know, yeah, the final end all. And I think it's my experience being here at the museum that a lot of people, when they come in the door, that's kind of what they're thinking is going to happen, that we're going to add it to the collection, that we're going to find a good home for it if we can't add yeah. it to the collection. Um, and then, I mean, most of those people are stopping by here because they were on their way to get rid of that object one way or another yes, anyway. So. true. <laughs> <laughs> but we do treat all of them with respect. We all take a, a good look at everything. And I think that's, you know, the, the best we can do is to promise people that if they have find those things in their family, in their attic, that... that they should bring them in, and we should get a look at yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. No artifact here, in my eyes, is better than another one, you know. Stuff mm -hmm. has cooler stories and everything, but as an archivist, we're kind of meant to take a step back and just look at everything as historical value, essentially. Great. Um, so we got accessioning, we got deaccessioning, we got... Let's talk a little bit about preserving stuff. Um, we don't take every piece and basically wrap it in, in muslin and, and, you know, and close it in a vacuum canister and, and put it up on a shelf somewhere. Um, stuff has to be not only preserved but accessible, right? Yes, that so. is correct. Another one. So what we typically do here is when we get stuff in, we'll accession it into the collection, make sure it's cleaned up, the document, if it has any errors or stuff like that we need, and if we need to apply cotton tape, that'd just be the conservation process. Me, personally, I don't have to do too much of that. There are people that are professional conservators, which, again, is another sect of the museum world. <laughs> yeah. But um, what we do there is then we just uh, basically follow the rules. We get our mylar sheets, and we put them out, and we uh, make sure they go into the right folders so that we could easily get them. Uh, they're kept in boxes, which have different subjects on them. And then uh, we're just trying to make it as easy to get these pieces out so we could present them to the public if they needed to be represented to researchers. Great. So you're going to keep them in, in a good shape where they're still going to be usable to the future generations. We're getting them in a place that we can find them again if yes. we need to. So the last part of this, the presentation part, to me, when I think about presentation, I think about a history museum. The best way to present history is to present it in context. You, you, you have to tell the story about it, not just the item itself or the person themselves. You have to tell, put the item in context, which is what makes it come alive for people to come into the museum. So um, just as an example, I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about uh, artifacts that come in, I know we've got a collection of, of canes and, and umbrellas and, and all sorts of little things like that that you know, we've got hundreds of. So when you find a cane specifically, something like that, a walking cane, what would put it in context? So for a cane or something like that, um, you know, we have to take a look and actually see who gave us the cane, the provenance behind the item. Um, let's say, you know, cane was an everyday item for everybody, but let's say it's got an inscription that says Colonel Baker on the front of it. Then we put that in context because that's odds are Colonel Edward Baker here. We've got a cane. We've got multiple of his canes actually in the archives here. So we're just yeah. using that as an example. And that kind of puts it in a more historical context. And then you notice that the cane has some bends in it. And then you realize, oh, that's his everyday walking cane. This is his everyday cane that he used based on determining the use of the item, context behind it, the historical, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of history behind it, and the social memory of people that may even remember and, you know, 
remember seeing him carry that cane around. Oh, yeah. And then if you get real lucky, when they decide to make a statue of him and put it on the bench out in front of his hotel, they come to you and they actually cast that cane and it becomes part of that statue, which for the people that are listening, if you haven't had a chance to go visit Colonel Baker out in front of the Hotel Baker, notice the cane he has and then come by the museum and Eric or someone here at the museum be happy to show you the original that that was cast from. Yeah, absolutely. It was done before my time, but as we all know, that statue is just one of a kind and we... Just love to see the absolute detail that went into that. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so, um, and then in terms of the next thing about presentation and the thing that I think is really one of the more complicated things for a museum to do is a lot of times we got to go outside these four walls. We, we have to go where people are doing stuff or make ourselves available. Now, we talked about research and the ability for people to get to hire us to do research for them. We get a lot of requests for that, and we appreciate that. Um, it does take time. Sometimes it's very fruitful. Sometimes we end up with a lot of information that, you know, is important to people. And sometimes we don't end up with that much information um, just because there's a hole in the collection for, for whatever reason. So in in some ways, though, I, I think we never strike out, right? We've got enough history that we're always able to fill in some holes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we go back, you know, to the start of this area when it was finally opened up in the 1830s. I mean, as far as... Uh... <laughs> For the rest of the United States and areas, we we got a long history here. We got people that you know had fathers serve in the Revolutionary War come over this way, and we have that store those stories being brought down, and then those stories keep going. We got something you know ever since settlers came. Yeah. So, uh, so recently, we just finished up an, an exhibit about spiritualism. I know that's one of the um, exhibits that you worked on, and, and we got some great feedback on that. What I enjoyed about it was the fact that it's another one of these things that starts out as what seems like kind of a, a two-dimensional type thing, um, spiritualism, when it occurred, and everything else. But you found the information about how important it was here in St. Charles and how it really impacted a lot of things here in St. Charles, and, and not in a spooky, you know, eerie Halloween way, but in a way that made St. Charles the center of a a progressive movement that was going on. Oh, absolutely. Um, When you talk about spiritualist movement, you kind of go back to 1848, so perfect time around here to also get spread around to the West. Um, We became kind of like a satellite to Chicago, which was what I would call the spiritualist capitalist of the West. So this town was filled with progressives and radicals, and a lot of them actually were attracted to the spiritualist movement because it went hand in hand with stuff such as the anti-slavery movement. This doesn't exactly, they're not mutually exclusive, but many of the practitioners were also abolitionists. They were strong feminists. They were strong looking for equality between everyone. Well, let me ask you this. Let's clarify something as we're going yeah, forward, because I just was watching something on TV. Um, there's a series uh, called on Smithsonian called America in Color, and they're basically colorizing really old footage. But they were talking about um, radicals in the early 20th century. Um, but I think we're talking about a different kind of what today we'd call a radical, right? A radical was a person that had a, a view that wasn't exactly in line with the rest of society. Yes, so this is taking it back to its simpler form there, where radical, radically different from the, you know, just kind of social norm of things here. So, you know, while many of the South or much of even the North embraced slavery and stuff, people like this would be abolitionists going against that norm, going against the grain of the day. Yeah. Um, not necessarily to a radical extent. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Some would, and you, you know, you got guys like Jim Brown, obviously, and Harper's mm-hmm. Ferry and stuff down there. Yep. Um, but that would, again, there's a bell curve with the radicalism. It goes up, 
and the normal people are up at the top in the middle and That's then it right. goes right yep. yeah it's not always a, a one-dimensional thing you either yeah. are or you aren't it's something it's are, not black and white it's yeah. totally yeah yeah it's, it's a lot of gray areas to you and stuff like that and i think we also found that there were people that were um even within the movement without going into all the details about spiritualism movement um there were there was a lot of division within the movement, so that people that you would think was a basic tenet of spiritualism, they wouldn't have necessarily agreed with, even though yep. in, in the whole they would have considered themselves spiritualists. They really wanted to take radical individualism and kind of freedom to the fullest extent, and when that happens, you know, you kind of get clashing ideals. Yeah, which, uh, but yeah, I think, they made it work for a while. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that your exhibit brought out was that this really did have that kind of not necessarily a bell curve, but it did have that rise and then the descent um although spiritualism exists today and and still you know embraced by many thousands millions of people for all i know um it in this area it kind of had its day really blew up major and today that's why i think it's a surprise yeah we're not a um what's the place that the oak something or calabasas in florida or you know we're not a a colony of of spiritualism like lilydale up in new york yeah yeah yeah. so all right so we had that exhibit we had a a great uh, speech by uh what was her name kathy hall uh, um that talked to us about spiritualism in the 20th century over at the library and um, so we're getting ready to shut that down. Um, in fact, it's this weekend. I think we're going to end on, on March 4th or yep. 3rd and be shutting it down. So what's next? So what's next is we actually are doing a little bit of a tribute. It's the 50th anniversary of Operation Homecoming, which took place from uh, February 12th of 1973 to about April 4th-ish. The last POW to actually be released by the Viet Cong was a St. Charles resident by the name of Robert Bob White. Uh, Bob is well fondly remembered by many over here, uh, class of 58. He actually um, was captured in 1969 and was basically a prisoner of war up until 1973. They almost actually forgot about him because he was secluded from other prisoner camps. It actually took some of the guards to tell their captors what do we do with this gentleman uh to get the ball rolling there and thank god in heavens that it happened and he was able to return um on april 2nd on united states soil oh that's so we're going to be putting up a little display to commemorate the 50th anniversary of uh, robert white and the pow movement kind of as a whole wow that's great you know somebody that graduated high school in 1973 it's really hard to hear you say 50 years ago but we're actually working (laughs) on my 50th reunion so i understand that um that's great and and i think that's going to have a lot of interest here locally because these things do kind of um spiral in and out of the public's consciousness it's great to bring the pow mia thing up every opportunity we get um here in st charles we've got a great veteran community so um, I think that's really oh, yeah, great. Absolutely. And that's going to be when, when we plan to do that? So this one's going to be opening up in mid-March here. Uh, it'll basically be running up until our next exhibit comes out, which will be on the 1933, basically the whole year there, because it was St. Charles Centennial, but it was also the C- Chicago World's Fair where they ce- celebrate a century of progress. Mm-hmm. So these two actually kind of went hand in hand, and to see all the different common denominators between what they were celebrating and we were celebrating has brought a very interesting story to light. 
Um, so we're, we're just like it's the 90th anniversary of the museum. Uh, it's the uh, 90th anniversary of the Century of Progress. So what are we calling that? Have we decided yet? Uh, we're thinking nearly another Century of Progress. That's good. Yeah, that's nearly good. a Century of Progress. We'll see as we yeah. as we get it up on a board and look at it a couple of times. We'll decide whether that reads well or not. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's coming up. You said again September. So that one will actually be May. May. That one will be uh, May 27th. That was the date that the fair opened. So we're going to try and get in line. Oh, with nice. that make yeah. it a little cute <laughs> great great and what was the entrance fee do you remember and no uh 25 cents per ticket in 1933 great. i believe yep yeah my mom went to that i remember her talking to me about that her uh, family lived in uh in chicago at the time so oh, yeah i think everybody in chicago had to go visit yeah, it. my my grandfather went to i remember him telling me stories yeah. too yeah that's great fantastic so it'll be a lot of memories there um yeah and i think that takes us till when at the end of the year yeah that thinking? should take us to the end of the year there we'll of course have vip and special events scattered throughout yep. the rest of it but, yeah, yeah we've got a couple other things coming up i just i'll, I'll tell, tell everybody about that um uh, march 11th is the saint patty's day parade we're going to be a uh what do we call it? A hot spot yes, for the hot spot. for the parade. Yep. So we're going to be available for people to sit out on the patio um, and 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 things like that up here at the museum. Um, in uh, May, we're going to do an event in partnership with uh, Onesti Entertainment. We're going to be at the Arcata Theater. Um, we're going to be celebrating um, the museum and uh, doing having some fun. We're going to have some live entertainment. We're going to be, uh, I understand we're going to be eating some of Ron's famous uh, Italian meatballs. Um, so look for more information on that on the website or on our Facebook page. Um, in general, we've got other things coming up. I, I've talked now with the Arts Council about partnering on a murder mystery this fall. We're going to be doing um, another event, I think, hopefully in the fall. I can't talk about yet because I don't have enough details firmed up. Yep. And then uh, December 8th, um, we're going to have another one of our holiday galas like we have the last couple of years. It'll again be at the St. Charles Country Club. This year, we're going to celebrate our 90th anniversary. It's actually the 100th anniversary for the Country Club, which is kind of fun. So, yeah. um, and, and, and those kinds of things going up. Other things, like you mentioned, we've got VIP events. Um, if you don't know what a VIP member is, I encourage everyone to, to check up on that. We've got regular family and individual memberships, but our VIP levels kind of open up a whole nother basket of benefits to people. Um, we recently have become part of something called the Time Traveler Reciprocal Museum Program, and that allows people at any level of membership to uh, have access to other museums. There's quite a lot of them, including the Geneva Museum, I believe the Batavia Museum is on there. And then... Um, we recently now went into an agreement with another group called the North American Reciprocal Museum Association, or NARM for short. NARM doesn't do much for me either, but I, I, it's one way to remember it. Um, the NARM Association actually gives you access to museums from Mexico to Canada. And uh, when you're traveling, uh, we just recently had a member that went down to St. Augustine. They were able to get into the uh, what used to be the Flagler Museum, I think it's called the Lerner Museum now, or Lerner, I can't remember how it's pronounced. Something like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. They were able to get in it at no cost because of the fact that they're members here at this museum. So, you know, more value from people to sign up. Look forward to increasing and, and welcoming you. Our VIP events are here at the museum in general. They're free to VIP members. We usually get together, meet other people in the neighborhood that, and in the community that like history, and uh, share a special program. Those programs have been everything from Frank Lloyd Wright Holmes to uh, J.T. Wheeler, one of our original founders. I'm looking at his desk here sitting in the, in the research library. Um, we actually had somebody come in and evaluate that for us kind of in real time, so that was fun. Yeah, that was very interesting. 
So um, I think we're going to wrap up um, this podcast, um, and uh, I, I want to thank Eric for being here today. Um, Eric is my co-host, so unfortunately or unfortunately for him, he'll be here every time <laughs> we do this. Uh, we're going to try and get some special guests. we got lots of people. Um, I, I think if we sat down and made a list, we could have about a, a 500 uh, podcast schedule going right now. <laughs> That's and, very true. And people that would come and talk to us. Um, and I, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, give us some feedback, either where you're seeing the links to this posted or uh, on our website where the uh, this podcast will be available for download and uh, stop in the museum and say hi to Eric or myself or the staff that's here and and check out the museum when you get a chance okay yeah we'd like to thank everyone out there in the community and everyone with a historical mind great all right thanks Eric thanks everybody for listening we'll talk to you soon have a great one